Thank, thank you, Nicholas, uh, and Capital Link for you know hosting this. And uh, I hope people are you know energized after the the lunch break and the in interesting discussions that have been had, and the panel we just had. So we've been through you know most of the key segments, and right now I would like you to to meet these these guys um, in the product tanker space. So with us today we have. Uh, from Premuda, CEO Marco Fiori. We have from Ardmore, Bart Keller, CFO. And we also have another CFO in Carlos Palestra di Mottola from D'Amico. And last but not the least, Ulf Becklund from Stena Bulk, General Manager in Products and Chemicals. So uh, there's no certain topic for the product tanker space in terms of decarbonization and what people have been through uh, in the past conferences that we've had. But I thought we would focus on three main parts in this uh, panel, which is the market, the drivers, what is it that is keeping the product tankers, uh, say, outperforming the VLCCs at the moment and having picked up sooner after COVID. We'll go through uh, a bit on the financial side, obviously being here at Capital Link, and also going through the regulations uh, and how that is impacting the um, decisions from these uh, ship owners. So I'd like to start with the first question, um, uh, and I think we could start maybe with Marco, if that's all right. Um, so from a CEO perspective, um, with the product tanker market, which is performing considerably stronger this year and last compared with a week 2021, what are the top market drivers supporting these solid freight markets? Is it owing to the demand side? Is it owing to the low delivery schedule? Or hence, a combination of both uh, and the recent ton mile changes? So what, what is your view supporting this strong product market that we're seeing today? Marco, please. Me? Are you sure about that? Um, so, <sighs> You know, honestly, I've, I've always been of the opinion that uh, we're seeing a very strong market, but we would have seen a much better market anyhow. So it's not been the Ukraine war, the embargo with Russia. I think there was a lot of things that were already uh, fermenting under the surface and would have been a good market. For sure, what I see on a very high-level uh, perspective is that, first, number one, there is less... Uh, supply than used to be. If you see, you know, on, uh, on the product tanker market, I think probably there is uh, uh, there is two yards in Japan, uh, three in Korea, and probably two, three in uh, China that are worthwhile. So you're talking about uh, three to five, eight yards in the world that are product that are producing coated uh, ships, and, uh, and there is very and there is very strong. Uh, limits on how much can be produced. You talk with the shipyards in Japan, and this is not only for product tankers like uh, Imabari or uh, or the big ones. Uh, you know, they used to have big schedule production of over 120 ships. Now probably they can produce uh, 75. Why? They have problems with the staffing, COVID, uh, uh, supply, and the, uh, the, all the supply of, uh, of pieces of manufacturers uh, that are getting done. So you see really there's been a huge change in the supply line of, of all the ships. So this, on the supply side, there is much less. Uh, on the 
on the demand side, I think with the fact of uh, ton mile has been a big, uh, big increase. The second big increase will be on the speed limitation for uh, EXI and, and other carbon related. So I think you're having a double whammy effect. You have less supply and also demand that's growing due to ton mile increase. You know, so I don't see why. Uh, why this market uh, should be uh, natural is going to have some volatility, which is good. I think a market that goes just straight up is not good for anybody. And uh, I think this going with volatility is going to be a strong market in the future. We have been active in, uh, in buying ships the last two, three years. And uh, some owners said, ah, you, we thought you were too aggressive, but in the end you were right. I think people who've been buying ships, I think they did very well. And I think the, especially modern ships, uh, post-2013, uh, the Echo ships, I think uh, you won't regret that. The only big change is going to be the, probably the next wave of ships that's going to be the more uh, with new technology, dual fuel, then you have to decide which dual fuel. But for the time being, people who are buying who has bought Echo ships, I think has been a good, uh, good investment, I think, uh, because uh, uh, the ship price has totally moved. You had, <coughs> you had in the 90s, you had uh, 20 to 28 million, then you went from uh, 29 to 35, 36, or 29 in, uh, in the year 2000. And I remember for my previous employer, we did a lot of those periods, which at around 30 was a great deal, a very great price for MRs. And now you're moving in the 38, 45. I don't think that there's going to be a lot of ships going back in the 35 million in the next years. I think it's, uh, it would be, especially with inflation that's been and everything, I think uh, we have been moving of, of really a band of uh, price band. So, less supply and more demand for different factors. We always go back to that, you know. Thank you, Marco. And uh, the other panelists, uh, do, you, do you share that view? Uh, and, and other than that, do any of you see any, you know, short-term short -term risks that could pose a threat to, to these, you know, solid markets that we're seeing today? Well, I, I think the, uh, Marco was saying here, it's a combination of uh, supply and demand. Uh, and, uh, but even before the uh, Russian invasion, we saw, uh, we saw uh, the ton mines were increasing quite a lot uh, with the closures of uh, refineries. Uh, for example, in uh, Australia, we have, uh, we have seen that uh, they've closed most of the refineries and, and that has increased the ton mines a lot. Also in Europe, we have closed a few refineries, and that is increasing ton miles. So, so even before the invasion, we, we saw that ton miles were, were increasing. So, it's uh, it's, it's strong fundamentals uh, on the demand side. Yes. Carlos, yeah, no, I agree with everything that was said so far. I would like to add that uh, another important component. Uh, on the demand side, uh, another important driver is the very low inventories. I mean, we, we had uh, a buildup in inventories actually throughout uh, last year. Uh, the, if you look at uh, uh, refined product stock inventories only in uh, OECD countries, um, they touched the uh, bottom around March last year and then uh, they built up between April and December um, in particular, at the, in the last part of the year, there was a, an important buildup of stocks 
uh, in, uh, in Europe uh, in anticipation of the sanctions that were going to come into force uh, in February uh, on Russian uh, exports. Um, and uh, that uh, somehow dampened demand a bit in the beginning of this year. So we had a, an amazing year, but it would have been even stronger uh, if we didn't have that, uh, that buildup uh, um, in stocks uh, last year. They remained below five-year averages, well below five-year averages. Uh, since then, they have been a bit more erratic, uh, and more recently, these stocks have come down uh, significantly. And the, the, let's say, the, what these uh, build-up in, in, in particular in diesel stocks uh, led to was uh, in conjunction with uh, a slightly less uh, vibrant industrial sector, in particular in, uh, in Europe and in the US, uh, was a decline in uh, diesel refining margins, which were very high at the end of last year, but uh, uh, fell in the beginning of this year, for most of the year. But most recently, they actually started moving up again, and they are now back at very interesting levels. So, um, and in the meantime, gasoline refining margins also increased, and fuel oil refining margins increased. So today, refineries again uh, making very good money, um, and stocks uh, have since fallen again. Um, and given the the OPEC cuts, uh, which uh, have been implemented. Uh, they might continue falling still for a short while, but there's not much more they can fall. Uh, and uh, when uh, refined product stocks reach such low levels uh, in importing countries, it can create a very nervous market uh, because at a certain point you just need to import. Uh, and then uh, uh, arbitrages open up. Uh, and especially in a high oil price environment, freight becomes a, a less important component of the equation. Uh, and therefore, um, who has to ship the oil uh, can pay quite high freight rates, and that's what we saw at the end of last year, and there's a good chance we might see that again this year. Thank you, Carlos. So I think we can conclude that product tankers, uh, you know, are seeing healthy demand uh, and supply variables that are, you know, destined to, to continue for the foreseeable future. Uh, moving over to, uh, to BART. Um, this is, I mean, this could be a question, you know, both for Ardmore, but also shipping in general. It doesn't have to be product tanker, but when you see these strong, you know, market conditions and also a changing landscape, how do you, you know, allocate capital as a product tanker company? Sure. I, I agree. Uh, I think lots of capital allocation questions and decisions just across the shipping segments today. Um, we take a multifaceted approach. Uh, we, we've had a capital allocation policy in place for a number of years before the, uh, the increase in, uh, in freight rates and TCEs. And, uh, and so for us, we see it as a balance. Um, we like to maintain, invest in the current fleet, and we see significant runway to make our current fleet more efficient. Um, and as we take vessels through dry dock, for example, this year we have eight dry dockings, and uh, the routine dry docking capex um, is actually the smaller portion relative to other larger projects that we're doing in terms of investment in scrubbers, investment in microboilers, and other energy efficiency devices that, uh, that we, we see relatively short payback periods for and, and better investments than, um, than other opportunities. Um, we'll continue to delever, uh, and I think like our peers uh, on the panel and, and across shipping, 
with the, uh, the increase in rates, the ability to actually reduce the balance sheets and make them stronger and, and give you that dry powder for, uh, for the future cycles. Um, we're, uh, we're always considering growth opportunities. Um, it's one that I think you have to have patience and, and be quite diligent. And today, um, certainly more of a challenge, but that doesn't mean that you don't stay in the market. And then, um, and then also, but, but certainly by no means um, the, the, the end of our focus, return of capital to shareholders. And we think in such a market environment, it's, uh, it's obviously quite prudent to return capital to shareholders. So uh, we reinstituted at the end of last year a, a dividend policy. And so we're, we're paying a variable dividend, one third of our adjusted earnings to, uh, to shareholders. And, and in this market that you have the luxury that that's not a waterfall of capital allocation, but you can actually allocate across these different four pillars simultaneously is, uh, is unique and we think important approach today. Carlos and, and uh, Marco and, uh, and Ulf, any, anything you want to add to that in terms of your companies? Uh, yeah. Um, Carlos, thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, should I go? Uh, let's go that way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we have been uh, quite active uh, as uh, most of our peers. Uh, uh, deleveraging, that was um, our number one priority because, of course, we, we all have come from uh, uh, several bad years and where leverage built up in our balance sheet at, uh, at the end of 18, the, the ratio between the, the net debt and fleet market value for us had reached uh, 73%. Uh, as of 30th of June this year, it had come down to 25%. So uh, we now feel this is at a very satisfactory level and deleveraging, of course, is going to continue being important for us, but it's not uh, the only main priority. I mean, we, are, we also uh, are looking now to distribute more cash, uh, also through share buybacks. Uh, since a few months, we have been uh, quite active uh, in that respect. Uh, we were a slow starter there, but we have room to do quite a lot. Uh, we have an authorization to buy back uh, up to 15% of the, of the shares uh, issued. Um, and, uh, and of course, dividends. I mean, uh, the dividend we paid, uh, we approved uh, out of the 22 results was not particularly uh, spectacular uh, given the results last year, but there's uh, definitely room to do more and we are looking forward to uh, distributing um, an increasing portion of our profits, although we don't have an explicit dividend policy. Um, and, uh, and also, we do have some opportunities for investments. We have a number of vessels which are uh, in TCN and which are in the money. Um, they also benefit from quite low time charters, so we are not in a hurry to exercise these options. Uh, but we, uh, uh, given the outlook for the market, it's quite likely that we will exercise them at a certain point and uh, the outlay for, for, for exercising these options at the next uh, uh, possible date would be around $130 million and we have $66 million in leases that can still be reimbursed vessels that we have on bare boat and where we can obtain significant savings by reimbursing them. Right. Thank you. Well, look, personally, I think, you know, that um, I think that uh, uh, high leverage, you know, I, I think that actually the market turned around at the right moment. I think 
the whole tanker market, not only product, but also, I think was going through a difficult period. I think uh, we would have had a very different conference if there was not this pickup in the market last year, starting last year. And, uh, and I think everybody involved, I think, has been tough years, but it's not only tough years. It's been constant tough years after tough year after tough year. So finally, we had a turnaround, and that was good, that we expected. I think we agreed on the fact that uh, the market would have changed with or without Ukraine or uh, Russian sanctions. That, I think, has been more like uh, an accelerant of the, of the market. But the market was poised. For months, we were seeing ton mile getting longer, but why the market is not going up? Ton mile getting longer, stretch, why the market is not going up? So I think everything was in the making. Now, what we should do? Now, investing today, it's very tough because the prices are very high. I think that probably, but on the other hand, you also have to reinvest because you're a shipping company, your assets are mainly ships, so if something has to be done. I think that also, again, we have a series of new ships, but I think the old is probably the one that's more targeted to be sold uh, because I feel that uh, uh, there's going to be regulation that are very adverse winds against these kind of ships, you know, from a uh, regulatory point of view of consumption, uh, CO2, uh, more expensive to manage. So I think the older ships, but I think everybody has been doing this choice. I think the Mico has done it, we have done it, I think everybody has been there. So it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. And then starting to invest slowly into uh, more modern ships. The only question mark is what kind of ships? Are you going to do them dual ready, dual methanol, dual, uh, dual ammonia? But I think this time will tell, you know. But however, Sorry if I'm not very politically correct. I think I believe that oil would be with us for a kind of a long time. I think everybody's pushing about, you know, oil 2030, no more uh, combustion engine, this. But the moment we'll get 2029, and there's not enough uh, capacity to convert everything, I'm sure that everything will be shifted. Well, okay, 2030 probably is too early. Don't make it 2035 or 2040, you know. So I think. Uh, will be with oil for a kind of a long time. We can improve a lot, we have to improve a lot, but I think that uh, oil will be with us for a long time, you know. Yeah, well, um, just going back to, to how we allocate the capital, uh, I mean, it's, it's a small comment, uh, it's a big difference, of course, if you're a listed company or for, for Stena, which is 100% family owned. Uh, the family was supporting our division uh, 2019-20 when it was really, really tough times. And uh, now it's, it's time for, for our segment to pay back to the family. So, so, of course, we see the yard prices are very high now. Maybe it's not the right time to order at the moment. But uh, then, uh, of course, uh, our owner, he has a lot of other projects he's looking at. And uh, recently he bought a new oil rig. So, so it's... Uh, it's different ways how you allocate the money if you're listed or, 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 or privately owned. Thank you, Ulf. And uh, going over to the next question, which is actually kind of following up what we just talked about in terms of allocation. And I've always, uh, you know, personally seen, you know, the, the years that we're going into now as a distinction between energy efficiency, which we would have done anyway, you know, in order to gain a competitive advantage. But in terms of the decarbonization is something that is kind of post upon us, uh, which is good uh, because it's much needed in, 
in order to comply with, uh, with CO2 emissions. And in terms of that, um, how do you as ship owners evaluate the feasibility and profitability, and I'm sorry because it's a, it's a very, very difficult question, the feasibility and profitability of new designs, and I think Marco also mentioned this, like dual fuel vessels when technology is quite young and bunker availability and price remains somewhat uncertain and volatile. So how do you then strategize on that when you make those decisions? Look, can I go first? Uh, okay, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, honestly, I think that uh, number one, I think you had this different type of ships and so, you know, different uh, courses for different horses. For example, you can't compare uh, a VL who normally does a fixed route from the Middle East to the uh, to US uh, to uh, NMR that does a lot of tramping all over the world. So, you know, the fuel choices are very tied also to the type of the ship where the ship goes. Second question, I think that uh, how, do you, how do you decide what to, I think uh, the technology is very modern, but I think also that there is a lot of things that, uh, that can change, uh, that can change, uh, that can change the nature of the game. You know, it's not only you do one thing and then you're 20% less in consumption or uh, 20, because then at the end of the day, less consumption, less CO2 that's getting emitted. So there is a very much a tied up as a, as a, a strict correlation. So it's not only the, the, the correlation on the consumption, but there's a lot of small things. For example, we found, and, and I know that in D'Amico also they're doing it, we spoke about it, uh, they have some ships on the manager. It's, for example, siliconic paint. Siliconic paint has a great advantage for uh, reducing friction because you have to do less hull. So a lot of small things, you know, you save 3% here, 4% there, 1.5% there, and then you get the 15, 20% so reduction. So I think it's just being careful, being uh, informed, and, uh, and, active, uh, and acting uh, proactively, and you know, starting to try different solutions, because I think a lot of small things make a big difference. You know? Bart, do you want to follow uh, up on that? I mean, certainly agree with Marco, a really similar approach that we're taking at Ardmore. Uh, we have a dedicated energy transition team that um, that that is, you know, separate from the um, the responsibilities of the day-to-day -day technical management. So that they can study and analyze the the potential you know engine technology and vessels of the future, and at the same time use that knowledge to make the current fleet more efficient. And so, I mean, that that group has reviewed more than a hundred different hardware, software, you know, changes to operating procedures and. Um, and we've made, we've made, I think, about a dozen different uh, investments, first pilot testing and then, and then for rollout across the fleet. Um, and, and I think, I think th that's key because there, there's the maybe initial stage of, of what you were talking about with the energy efficiency, but I think before we jump to the ship of the future, there's a lot more that we can do to the existing fleet that then will be put into the ship of the future as well. And um, Ulf, uh, I'll, um, I'll, I'll direct this ne next question to you. Uh, since you're obviously also in, in the chemical, uh, chemical space and there's been a lot of, you know, uh, justification on the CII when you're in regional trades with a lot of, you know, port calls. Uh, do you see any specific threats or opportunities 
to the product tanker market from new regulations such as the CII and EEXI? Well, uh, I would say for, for Stena, we see more opportunities with it, uh, but we have a fairly young fleet, so then it's maybe easier to say. Uh, I think we will see uh, uh, some, some of the older vessels dis disappear from the European market, which cannot really comply with the CII and, and, uh, and so on. So, so that, for us, could be an opportunity. And, uh, but uh, what uh, we heard before here from Frontline uh, with uh, ETS, we also believe that uh, it will be the consumers in, in the end that will have to pay for it. It will be the European consumers uh, that, uh, and also the European industries will uh, lose a little bit of competitiveness compared to, to other countries. Uh, but I guess some, some, uh, some part of the world has to go first, I guess, but uh, it would be better if it was a global initiative than, than just in, in Europe, uh, is our opinion. That is also what one could, could you know, believe that uh, uh, there would be a global taxation at some point and in combination with energy efficiency uh, because that is probably the only, you know, mean that you can do on a, say, to total level uh, until there is a sufficient fuel available, which would be um, totally carbon neutral. Um, I will uh, go on with the next question. I see that time is flying. Uh, so. In terms of you know this these strong uh, demand and supply variables that we were talking about in the initial question, uh, the first half of 2023 has seen orders for product tankers picking up, and in fact new ordering is four times higher uh, in first half 23 compared to last year, and it has not been higher since the first half of year 2013. Um, and this is obviously despite the high new building prices and the lingering around future-proof propulsion, as we just talked about. Are we set for the typical boom and bust when these uh, um, ships are delivered? Uh, will we see any overcapacity? Uh, what, what, what are your views on that? Carlos? Yeah, no, indeed, uh, it, it is true that the order book has increased quite a bit this year. I mean, at the end of uh, 22, uh, cross product tankers, the the order book to to fleet ratio was at around five percent. Now we are around nine percent. Um, most of the orders focus on the LR2 uh, segment, which uh, is a peculiar segment we we are not present in. But uh, it, it does uh, these vessels do uh, trade quite actively uh, from the uh, clean space to the dirty space. So they, they should be looked at in conjunction also with the order book for um, the crew tankers. Um, and, uh, but nonetheless, you know, it is a big increase. Um, and, and on the positive side, uh, it's, it's also true that the fleet is aging fast. Uh, a lot of the vessels which were ordered in the last super cycle from 03 to 08 are now uh, crossing the, the 15 and 20 year old thresholds. So we already have today 35% of the fleet, uh, which is more than 15 years, um, and 9%, which is more than 20 years. Yeah, and just to add to that, I see that the, the product tanker order book now is 8.9%, yeah. which is, I think, decent. Then 
uh, use at vessels above tw uh, 15 years and above 20 years it's 10%, which is also quite substantial. It's quite substantial, yeah. And it's actually going to increase further uh, in the coming years. So according to our estimates, by the end of 24, uh, we should have around 13% of the fleet, which is more than, uh, than 20 years, and 53%, which is more than uh, 15 years. So, um, so that helps, of course. Uh, but uh, as long as you know, um, the, the uh, new building orders uh, slow down, I mean, if, of course, if they continue coming in at the same pace, then we might have a problem. We still don't have a problem. Uh, it's still, the outlook is still very good. Uh, this year, the, the fleet is uh, growing very little, 2.1%. Uh, next year, it's 1.2%. So it's, yeah. it's a record low. It's, it's a great outlook for next year. 25 starts accelerating a bit, uh, but still manageable. Uh, but it's important that uh, owners uh, show restraint here because I agree with Marco. It's true that um, we are going to have oil uh, for a, a long time still. And uh, I expect that the uh, demand estimates by the, the main agencies, research agencies, are actually going to move uh, forward. They are quite timid in their assumptions about demand growth after 26. And I think there is a good chance that it actually might be much faster because, as Marco mentioned, uh, renewable energy is a scarce resource. And we, there is a huge need for renewable energy. And there's a huge need for renewable energy for electricity in the first place. Uh, and, and then we are talking now about producing uh, fuels with renewable energy for shipping. And that is a, a huge need also, which we are very far away from meeting. Uh, and so, uh, so I think there are going to be bottlenecks that we are going to be meeting sometime soon in, in that space, which means that the, the old space is going to become more relevant for longer. So we could have uh, some positive surprises on the demand side. Very interesting, Carlos. Anyone wants to chip in on that? I totally agree with what, uh, what Carlos says, but only one thing, but, which is a demonstration of the age gap between Carlos and myself. He's still an optimist, and I'm becoming a cynical and a pessimist. Uh, he says self-restraint. Owners have been their worst enemies over and over and over again. And you go to a lot of owners, why did you order? Oh, because the price was good. Or why did you order? Oh, because if I wasn't doing it, somebody else was doing it. So as long as you have people with these schemes of mentality, it's impossible. You know, it's not, not let's hope self-restraint. You know, I don't count on self-restraint anymore. So the only thing you should count is that I hope they're building a lot of dry cargo ships. I think the container boom is continuing, so they build a lot of containers. So the tanker owners are squeezed out of the building and so they can't build tankers which is why we have a low building order if you think about it containers has occupied all the yards then was dry cargo before so we have been pushed out but thank god we were pushed out otherwise we would have killed ourselves you know like uh, me first you know like it happens constantly you know so you know so but Carlos, it's good that you're still an optimist. Uh, it's good to no, be. No, but, uh, I agree with you. Now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's idiotic, you know, and um, and uh, unfortunately. But I think that uh, I think the market uh, will will reach a certain point of equilibrium. But cost is going up for sure. Cost is going up. No thank doubt thank you, that. Marco, and and thanks to Carlos for that uh, insight. Um, this was more so. So let's say we conclude on a modest, uh, modest risk on the on the fleet. So if we move to the demand side in terms of risk. Uh, so my next question here, and we have five minutes left. Uh, so if China would suddenly reduce its product export quotas, 
Uh, it has been done before either due to a very strong um, domestic demand or a clampdown on emissions. What would the impact be for trade? Um, are there any you know, refining hub uh, there to replace those volumes that would then uh, be, uh, be, be reduced? Uh, we could start with Bart uh, on this question. Well, I guess, unfortunately, uh, China recently announced uh, its third batch of export quotas and, and stepped up, and it looks like uh, exports will end up with kind of the order of magnitude, 15% plus uh, year over year. Um, and, and I think the strong refinery margins uh, will help as well, where even if the domestic demand in China um, is more modest, that, that they'll actually produce for export. And, uh, and in general, whether it's China or newer refining capacity coming on in Asia or Asia and the Middle East, that that tends to be a longer haul incremental ton mile benefit for our sector. So, um, so we actually you know, we, we actually think Chinese exports should be additive and, and might even surprise to the upside. And um, and should that not occur, then other export centers in uh, in Asia likely fill the gap. Thanks, Bart. Uh, Ulf. Uh Anything you want to add to that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by that, I think, you know, with four, four minutes left, we can open the floor to uh, some questions. If anyone uh, would like to ask these excellent panelists anything, now's your time. And if not, I have a couple of more questions. So, um, alternative, um, to, to follow up on above with, with OPEC and Russian crude production and export cuts, um, is it not inherent that China will reduce refinery throughput uh, and availability of oil products for export markets? Um, or would we just see um, draws uh, on, on the stocks of crude? Carlos? I don't think it's inevitable that they will uh, reduce uh, exports. And actually, if you look at the quotas that were uh, provided this year for exports, um, with the, the latest uh, batch uh, approved of 12 million tons, uh, we, we should be 2.7 million above last year. Um, and there is also, there's still talk of uh, an additional maybe uh, um, a small quota being uh, approved before the end of the year. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, there, there might be uh, the occasional moment where uh, there is a mismatch between uh, new refinery capacity coming online in, in, in China and, and the growth in demand, and they might have to cut, cut back, and they are definitely going to be managing uh, export quotas actively as, uh, as they have been over the last few years. But the, the longer, let's say, medium-term picture is that uh, the refinery capacity that is coming online is, uh, in, in China should be more than enough to meet the increase in demand and still leave some more for exports. So exports should grow over the medium term. Thank you. And, and final question um, from me, if the audience is still uh, without any questions, would be, uh, and I think it's, have, you know, uh, inevitable. Down there. Look, there is a gentleman who okay. the question. Sorry. Uh, a courageous... Please. Thank you. Um, Tom Washington, S&P Global. Um, the, my question is to do, uh, about the impact of Russia sanctions. With the oil price cap sort of being where it is and prices being where they are now, 
then which would apply to obviously to dirties would work as well as to clean. Um, that represents difficult questions to those who have been in a kind of in between the kind of grey kind of fleet who have been perfectly legally carrying Russian barrels using using sort of um, under financial services. Um, they now have to go somewhere else if they face difficulties of the price. That surely presents the prospect of more competition for you. Sorry, the question is the grey fleet, the impact of the grey fleet, is how it's going to be? The impact of the grey fleet, how's that going to be on, uh, okay. Carlos, you have any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> No, look, a lot, it's a tough one, but look, a lot of the grey fleet is, goes back to the fundamentals. A lot of the grey fleet, if you talk to traders and a lot of, a lot of people operating in business, once it has gone grey, it's never coming back in the regular trade. So and normally it's been that a lot of the older ships have gone in the grey fleet. But there is going to be a point where also if all of this mess and this turmoil, which I doubt will be in the short term, because I think sanctions for Russia, I'm sorry to say it, but I think will last a long time because today there are sanctions because there is a war, the war ends, there's going to be sanctions because they're going to be asked war reparation and these guys are going to say no way war reparation. So I think it's going to be an ongoing process. But let's say that sanctions finish tomorrow. I think a lot of this fleet won't be reabsorbed. It's part of the older fleet, but there is still a core demand of uh, energy transportation for countries that do not accept, uh, that have, have accepted sanctions. So I think a lot, of the pre, a lot of this fleet has been eliminated out of the market. It's the older part of the fleet. And so we go back, who's going to be building the future fleet? What kind of ships are you going to be building? What kind of technology? Because I think what's left is not going to come back inside this market, honestly. I see very difficult uh, that traders and oil company are going uh, to reaccept using ships that have a kind of a tainted past, at least that's my opinion. Yeah. Great question and a very good answer, Marco. And with that, our time is up. Um, so I'd like to thank the panel for a very insightful discussion on the product tanker market. Thank you very much.